Welcome to another episode of Top Class with me, Duncan Crawford, where we're talking PISA results. PISA is the Programme for International Student Assessment. It is the flagship OECD test that assesses 15-year-olds in maths, reading and science around the world. Almost 700,000 students took the test in 2022. It was the biggest ever PISA exams. 81 countries and economies took part and the results are finally out. To delve into all the findings, I'm joined by a man who's been dubbed the world's headmaster. Others refer to him as the PISA delivery man. Here at the OECD, we use his official title, the OECD's Director for Education and Skills, Andreas Schleicher. Andreas, thank you for joining me. Thanks for hosting. So, Andreas, PISA results are out. There are obviously lots of interesting stories buried in the data, but the big overall finding is that many education systems around the world have seen a big drop in performance, certainly in maths and reading. People want to know why. Yeah, the last four years have been tough for students. The pandemic hasn't made things easier, even though that's only part of the story that we're talking about here. We've seen a decline in parental engagement and support in many countries. We have seen technology distracting young people in ways that we hadn't seen before in some countries, even a decline in the personal support by teachers. And the mix of those factors might have contributed to what we see in terms of an overall decline in outcomes. One of the big aspects mentioned in the press since the PISA report came out is the impact of the pandemic, COVID-19. How much of an impact do you think COVID had on student performance overall? It's always going to be hard to disentangle different factors. We only see the bottom line result of performance. And uh, But I would caution to overinterpret the pandemic. It would be convenient uh, answer. We could just say, oh, well, the pandemic is gone. Things will go back to normal. Uh, I don't think there's evidence to support that. We have seen the decline uh, setting on in many of those countries that have seen the steepest decline now well before the pandemic. And uh, we have seen other factors relating to that decline. So I, I do believe that the pandemic has been part of the story, but certainly not the main or only contributor to this overall drop. Okay. In many cases, the drop in maths and reading scores was more than 20 score points in 2022, which roughly equates to a year's worth of education. Denmark, France, Greece, Portugal and Sweden all saw sizable drops in maths, for example. How concerning is this? And what kind of impact can those lower scores have on children's long-term development? Well, we live in a world where mathematics is becoming increasingly important. You're not going to follow the debate on climate change if you do not have an understanding of exponentials. You're not going to be dealing with you know, the evolution of a pandemic if you can't think in probabilistic terms. Math is everywhere. And it's not just you know, for the few people who become engineers, but it's really to you know, participate in our economies, our societies. You need to have a really good understanding of fundamental mathematical concepts. And that's what we're testing here. We're not testing, you know, very abstract, sophisticated uh, mathematical formulas. We do uh, assess whether students have a kind of baseline understanding of the concepts and the mathematical concepts that play a role in our societies, our economies. So the world gets more demanding. Our school systems actually deliver poorer results. That gap between what economies need and what, what schools provide is becoming wider. And we should be 
concerned about it. Our schools today are going to be our economy, our society tomorrow. So given what you say there about mathematics, when you look at the findings overall for maths, reading, and science, 15-year-olds are now less likely to be proficient in those subjects than those tested by PISA a decade ago. A quarter of 15-year-olds in OECD member countries are not considered capable of answering level two PISA questions. That's the base level of proficiency in PISA tests. What does that mean practically? You know, the baseline level of mathematics is really the kind of math you need every day. You know, can you calculate the tip on a on a on a restaurant bill? Can you you know uh, add up you know things on a spreadsheet? This is not very complex mathematics. This is 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 hard to imagine how you can live without it successfully in today's world. Given what you just said there, how concerned should we be that a quarter of fifteen-year-olds across OECD member countries? don't have those skills? Well, you know, the more we see polarization in the skills of people, the more we're going to see polarization in our labor markets, our economies, our societies, our democracies. I mean, all of that is grounded on the knowledge, skills, and attitudes that, that people bring with them. So people not accessing the knowledge of our times means they're not going to be participating effectively in, in, in social and economic processes. And I do think uh, we should be deeply concerned. And we should look at those countries that actually show us that every student does succeed. There are a fair number of countries where we do not see underperformance in mathematics, where students from the most disadvantaged backgrounds outperform the average in the OECD. And I think that shows us that uh, this is not an inevitable outcome. No. You mentioned high-performing countries. Singapore, this time round, was top of the class. It came top in maths, reading, and science, outperforming everyone else. Other East Asian education systems, such as Japan, Korea, a few others, generally did very well in all three subjects as well. What is Singapore and others in East Asia doing right that other countries are not? Well, there are plenty of things we can learn from Singapore. First of all, to be you know sufficiently ambitious. They have high expectations on every student and they deliver on that. There's no tolerance for failure. In this system. So they are in their instructional system rigorous. They are expecting students to do well. They are focused. They, they teach fewer things at greater depths. Part of the problem that we have you know, in the rest of the world is that our school systems have become a mile wide and just an inch deep. We teach a lot of stuff at relatively shallow depths. And Singapore is a great example. You know, they, they are clear what is important to them and they give people a deep understanding of those ideas and concepts. That's really what counts to be successful in a field like mathematics and science. And they are coherent in their instructional systems. They basically have built that system step by step, and they're not giving people different messages every day, which we tend to do in many other countries. You know, reforms change here, and then tomorrow something else. Singapore has, you know, progressed in very, very systematic ways. That's one thing, the instructional system. Second, uh, they get great people into teaching. They have made teaching not just financially, but also intellectually attractive. They get the best and brightest to become the educators of the next generation. That obviously helps because the quality of education can never exceed the quality of teachers. Third, they're very good in aligning resources with needs. They're not spending excessively on education, but they're very deliberate 
how they target the resources to help the students who need that resource most to get the best of it. They're very good at attracting talented teachers into challenging classrooms. They get great school leaders you know, to, to, to lead them uh, difficult schools. So alignment of resources with needs. And last but not least, you know, they have you know, avoided the trend towards what I would call commodification of education that we often see. You know, students become consumers of prefabricated content. Teachers are seen as some kind of service providers and the parents are client. You know, I give you my child to be ready for Harvard. But you can see in Singapore, everybody is part of the equation. Parents have a clearly defined role and responsibility in the system. Teachers are not just great instructors. They are good coaches. They are good mentors. They are good facilitators. They are good social workers. And, and students, you know, also have their own responsibility in the system, not just, you know, uh, as, as listeners to this. And that's a feature, actually. Those features are not just, you know, what you see in Singapore. That's the hallmark of most high-performing education systems. You mentioned a lot of things there. So let's dig down into some of them. How big a factor is pay in regards to teaching? Are teachers in high-performing systems paid more relative to others? We do not see a clear relationship between teacher pay and, and, and uh, PISA scores, really. There is obviously, you know, teachers need to be paid adequately, but you can see countries, you know, my own country, Germany or Luxembourg, with very high teacher salaries where teaching still is not attractive. It's easy to make teaching financially attractive, but you need to make it intellectually attractive to get the people you need to make a work. And uh, that is not about pay. It's really about the kind of conditions that you provide for teachers, you know, interesting career prospects. It's about a collaborative culture. It's about teachers being, you know, part of the solutions rather than just, you know, a wheel in a big bureaucracy. So, that's really what, what is at stake. Pay, you know, is necessary, but certainly not sufficient. In terms of spending in broader terms, spending in education has increased even as PISA data show that global education has declined over the past decade. Why is increased spending not often having a positive impact? Well, you know, the reason why spending increases is simple outcome of the production function in education. We don't change the model, salaries rise, so education becomes more expensive. We have not embarked on, you know, reconfiguring this space as the people, the time, the technology, the relationships in new ways. So, yeah, necessarily things become more expensive, but not necessarily better. If you want to make things better, you have to do things differently, not just, you know, when when people become older or you get salaries rising, that puts pressure on spending without actually resulting in different work. So I think that's very natural that education is, you know, costs are creeping up, but it is not un unless we change the production function that we're going to see different outcomes. Now. And that's also uh, the interesting part of the cross-country relationship. You can see, for example, Singapore and Qatar spend similar on education and achieve very, very different outcomes. Or, you know, Vietnam and the Philippines have similar spending levels, very different outcomes. And so it, it, I think it shows very, very clearly that money is necessary, but clearly not sufficient. Looking at the PISA reports, OECD data suggests that spending more on school funding up to a threshold of $75,000 per pupil that's spread over each child's first 10 years in school, that it is beneficial to outcomes. But beyond that point, beyond $75,000, the gains are less obvious. So what's your advice to countries then 
surely not to reduce spending. No, I mean, uh, if you reduce spending and uh, don't change anything, you get worse outcomes. That's very clear. But uh, I think it's about spending money more effectively. If you have to make a choice between you know, a better teacher and a smaller class, invest the resources in raising the quality of teachers. Invest the resources in the time that teachers can spend with students out at the classroom settings. Uh, and um, it's really about spending choices. Invest the resources uh, in the children that needs the support. You know, if you come from a wealthy background, school doesn't make that much of a difference for you. You know, you will always find open doors in life. If you come from a disadvantaged background, finding a great teacher in a good school is often the only card you can play. And that's where the resources are well, well invested. So aligning resources with needs, all of those things allow us to achieve good results with acceptable spending. You mentioned smaller class sizes. You know, lots of parents and school teachers would be fans of that policy of smaller class sizes. But are you effectively saying that there are other options that should be considered that would lead to better results? Yeah, we don't see much of a cross-country relationship between the size of classes and the quality of outcomes. Yes, sure, if you reduce classes, class sizes, uh, you may get sort of marginally better outcomes, but at a huge cost. Think about what you could buy with that money. You could actually, you know, pay your teachers a lot better. You could give teachers more time to do other things in teaching. You get, could give students more hours of tutoring. Uh, so there's, the, the opportunity costs are just tremendously high. The, the relative gains of smaller classes. Of course, it's popular. It's popular with parents and teachers because it's one of the few things that we can see. But, you know, when you have to make your own choice as a parent, you know, you want your child with the best teacher in the school, you don't care about the size of the class. You say about the person, we should, as a system, take that same attitude, get the best and brightest to teach our children. And then, you know, yeah, make compromises on other things. Why do I say this? It's what the high-performing education systems do. You look to a class size in, in, in Singapore, in Japan, and actually they make that trade-off in the right way. How do you go about improving teacher training? If you have a low overall quality of teachers compared to other countries, there's presumably a smaller pool of highly skilled, effective teachers to share their skills with others. Yeah, that's a hard uh, problem to solve. You know, we have, of course, initial teacher training, the kind of education that teachers get before they get into the job. But even if you change that drastically today, it's going to affect the teaching workforce only in the next 40 years. So the bigger part of the answer is how can we make school more of an environment where teachers are learners, where actually teachers have access to continued professional development, where they work in a collaborative culture, where they observe each other's classroom, where they do careful lesson study, get additional support. That's really, I think, the only way how we can change the teaching force today. We want a teaching force different tomorrow. Yeah, we should, you know, get the university education up front in a better shape. But the big answer really is how we can create an environment where school is not just a place where students learn, but where everybody learns. And I do believe students are unlikely to become lifelong learners if they do not see their teachers also, you know, as learners in investing in their own capabilities individually and as a team. Talking about how students perceived teachers. PISA has data on teacher support, which shows a deterioration over the last decade, at least in the perception of students, of how much support they're getting from teachers. Do you think teachers are really 
giving less support to their students? It's hard to judge. Maybe the expectations of students are rising, but I'm worried about those numbers. The fact that 13% of students say during the pandemic, someone from the school called me how I am, you know, that is what you would assume that, you know, education takes in, in, a, in a moment of crisis, a real interest in the well-being of children. And the fact that this is, you know, the exception rather than the rule is worrying. The fact that many students, a third of, you know, 15-year-olds think that, you know, my teacher won't support students when they need help or they are not present when help is needed. I think that is a quite disturbing number, really. And, um whether that perception comes from higher expectations or actually declining teacher support, you know, teachers just getting too busy with other things. It shows there's something wrong in the education model. I don't want to blame individual teachers for this result, but it really shows that teachers see themselves mainly as, you know, delivering, you know, lessons as opposed to, you know, finding out who their students are and who they want to become and how they can accompany them on that journey. But that is what the future of teaching is about. You know, artificial intelligence technology is going to do a lot of the knowledge transmission tomorrow. The role of a teacher to be a good coach, to be a good mentor, to be a great facilitator, a good evaluator, that's really, I think, where we can make a difference. And that is exactly where we are seeing things going in the wrong direction. You mentioned disturbing figures in that answer. And there was a figure that jumped out to me in the PISA data, which is that on average across OECD countries, 8% of students reported not eating at least once a week in the past 30 days due to lack of money to buy food. That seems an astonishing figure, and it's an even higher proportion in certain OECD countries. Yeah, absolutely. If uh, students are too hungry to learn, outcomes won't be great. No? And um that's probably not something that we can attribute directly uh, uh, to schools. That's probably more of the social environment. It may also have been, you know, due to the exceptional situation after the after the pandemic. But certainly, you know, we need to put in place even the most basic conditions. What is most disturbing on that number is that uh, we see those high figures in some of the wealthiest countries. You know, you'd expect it, you know, in in, in the developing world. But the fact that you have one in five students in Turkey or one in ten in the U.S. and U.K., I think these are very high numbers. Now. Analysis from this latest piece of data shows that advantaged students performed better consistently than their disadvantaged peers in all countries and economies. What needs to change to reduce that gap? Well, what gives me courage is that this gap varies so much across countries. You know, you can see that, uh, you know, 10% most disadvantaged students in a country like Korea or Macau are doing as well as the wealthiest students in the Slovak Republic. And I think that shows us that poverty need not be destiny. I think that's actually, for me, the most compelling results from PISA. If you would see the same relationship across countries, you would say, well, there's nothing we can do about it. But actually, that impact of social background varies enormously. And it has to do, you know, do we understand performance difference early on? Do we uh, provide a good foundation in early childhood education? Do we actually give additional support, sometimes additional tutoring to students from disadvantaged, to students with an immigrant background? Those are the questions I think these data raise, and there are answers to this. What are the answers? Are there any good practices in particular that countries should look to? Yeah, you know, I think early childhood education is clearly shown to be mitigating uh, social background. Language foundations are very important. 
differentiated instruction can be a means. It's a bit controversial, but we have some evidence that dividing students into ability grouping within selected subjects can be conducive to addressing some of the heterogeneity. You know, again, aligning resources with needs, getting great teachers teaching the most disadvantaged students is, is a way. Sometimes providing additional time. You know, we've seen after the pandemic how effective individual tutoring can be. Sometimes that can be technology-enabled. You look at, you know, artificially intelligently-based uh, digital tutors in Korea. I think there are lots of ways how we can actually reduce that gap. And the fact, again, that some countries see a much smaller gap, social gap, shows that this is possible. You mentioned AI, and obviously it's mentioned frequently as the next big thing to support education and other aspects of society. To focus on everyday digital devices for a moment, mobile phones, laptops, tablets, and so on, one stat that really jumped out at me was that on average across OECD countries, 45% of students reported feeling nervous or anxious if their phones were not near them. And 65% of students, two-thirds, reported being distracted by using digital devices in at least some maths lessons. So there are concerns about digital devices also being a hindrance to learning. Yeah, I think we need to differentiate here. Like uh, the data show no negative relationship between technology for instructional use. Where teachers, you know, make intentional, deliberate use of technology and instruction, it can be an amazing tool to make learning more interesting, more engaging, more personal, more adaptive, and things like this. And uh, there is nothing uh, that PISA suggests is wrong with that. Uh, the negative relationship comes out of technology use for leisure. That's basically, you know, where it is unmanaged, uncontrolled, where, you know, students, you know, work on their phones or tablets during a math lessons, and that is highly destructive. And as these data show, the data you cite, it's highly addictive. That is the uh, reality. Uh, what we see is that what teachers say about this or school principals in terms of making up their own rules doesn't have much of an effect. Basically, students are not faced about, you know, what their teacher says about it. The only countries where you do have see less destruction is where you have a ban on phones. Now, that's one way how you can address it. But at the very same time, I think you also want to enable your students to become, you know, smart users of those technologies. And this is, again, where the relationship with parents comes into play. You know, some school systems say, well, it's not our job to give parents advice, but, you know, School probably has a lot more experience. Teachers have a lot more experience what is, you know, conducive use of technology at home than, than, than parents have with their first child. And if your child, you know, plays at 11 o'clock at night with a phone, that's probably not a good thing even the next day in school. So I, I do think um, you can go, go the way of, you know, banning this. That solves the problem temporarily. But in the long run, it's really about, you know, getting uh, students, schools, teachers, parents, to take more greater responsibility for effective use of technology. Now, this is—it's very clear. It's one of the barriers, and you know, the if the size of the effect uh, is at least as much as what we see from the pandemic. You know. Some countries have implemented phone bans in schools. Is that something that you think is effective? Well, it's probably a question of the age group they're talking about. You know, I think uh, in, in, for for younger children, I, I would say that is probably a, an effective way of of you know, reducing the distractions. And what we can see from the PISA data, even at age 15, you know, it is one of the 
factors that relates quite quite clearly to less destructions. For all the children, you know, I would say we should do more to make them responsible users of technologies. Now, the ban can be, you know, in uh, one way to address it, but I think in the long run, building capabilities to to manage yourself, to live with your smartphone, I think is an important educational goal, and schools can contribute to that. Looking to the future for a moment, given what we've seen from the latest PISA results with these long-term downtrends in educational performance continuing in many parts of the world, do you believe going forward that results and standards are going to improve? Well, I don't think we have much of a choice. If we want to see you know, productivity grows, a better economy, a more cohesive society, a, a well-functioning democracy, we, we, we have to invest in, uh, in a better education. And uh, I think we should look towards the countries that show today that this is an achievable goal. Andreas Schleicher, the OEC's Director for Education and Skills, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. If anyone wants to learn more about the PISA results, then please do go to the OECD website. Right at the top of the front page, you can click on PISA 2022 and you will find out lots, lots more. You can also try a sample of the PISA questions yourself. Do check it out. Thanks again to Andreas and to those listening to this podcast. Please do join us again for another episode of Top Class soon. All the best.